0: Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, this wealth you shall remember the lord your god for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day and if you forget the lord your god and go after other gods and serve them and worship them i solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the lord makes to perish before you so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. A
1: brief comment on the nature of our subject matter today. Today is Father's Day, as you know. <clears throat> um, excuse me. Uh, today is Father's Day, as you know. And Father's Day is not a day that has existed for a long period of time. It is a relatively new construct, it's a social aspect of our culture here in America, and it's, it's a good and godly day. There's nothing inherently wrong or sinful in it, but uh, rather than simply honoring fathers, as we've been talking about the last two weeks, we've been discussing the aspect of Christian family as a part of our discipleship, and uh, coming to Father's Day, I thought it fitting to, to find a passage that was in the context of what we've been speaking on the last few days as well as a passage which speaks of God's fathering of his people. And this in this passage, Moses is giving, in the second giving of the law, as the people are entering into the land, he's giving them a final set of reminders to put into force or to put into their front of mind, which will establish them in the land and not cause them to be diminished in the land. And I just want to speak about the, this aspect of the Father's instruction And we're going to look a little bit about this idea of God's discipline as a father, his fatherly discipline. But before we touch on that, I want to speak to a concern of uh, the modern era in American Christianity has reduced God's authority to speaking on matters of only of eternal salvation. And if you have been to this church for any length of time, you know that we strongly resist and teach against that heresy it is a heresy because it limits christ's kingdom only to a spiritual kingdom that is to say christ has some sort of kingdom right now but it doesn't actually have any effect in the here now the time space continuum it only waits until the final day in which christians are vindicated and demonstrated as righteous and those who are not followers of Yahweh, those who have rejected his anointed, are are demonstrated as unrighteous and worthy of condemnation. Uh, And so when, when we discuss these things, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, the aspect of Christian family, this is something that Christ has the right and authority to speak of. And as students of his word, as those who seek to be disciples of Christ, we want to press out our Christianity, Christianity, or our worldview that is biblical and honoring of Christ, into every dimension of life. Christianity, which is not applied, is no Christianity at all. It is merely a set of doctrines that affect only the spiritual realm and never make any effect in the natural realm. But unfortunately, it is not the case that that's even possible. Your theology always will be worked out. The deeds of the flesh are manifest. And so if you are one who is fleshly minded and not renewing your mind according to the spirit of God, you will have many different manifold, various diverse errors and dysfunctions in life, whether it be with family, work ethic, the way that you handle your finances, the way that you approach education and vocation, the way you think of the natural world and therefore what you do in it, your understanding and ability to war against sins of the flesh versus only focusing on things of the spirit, and I use air quotes there for those who are listening, uh, that is all, those are all leaves of the tree of the root of antinomianism. And antinomianism simply means that because we're under grace, we don't have any sort of obligation before God, which is, again, a heresy. Christ has the right to speak about Christian family. And so I thought it fitting in the context of God's family over a group of people, namely Israel, and now as manifested for us in the church, that we begin to see our individual responsibility as children of God. So this isn't a message just to families or just to fathers versus mothers or just to children versus parents. This is a message to all those who are children of God all those who have been redeemed by Christ and transferred into his kingdom. So my desire in these is for you to begin to learn how to press out your faith in biblical ways and to apply them. And, and you can only do that having rightly understood, heard, received, believed on, and trusted in God's word. And so these are training exercises. These are, these are demonstrations of a way of interpretation or exercises in hermeneutics biblical hermeneutics. So that's my goal for you today, is that you would see, yet again, another example of how God's word informs Christian obedience, faith-filled obedience. So I want to talk about your personal purpose in the covenant of God. And by the covenant of God, I mean the everlasting covenant, which includes the old and new covenants, those which are wrongly called the old covenant, or actually many covenants, at least five, maybe seven uh, and those covenants are an ever-increasing scope and demonstration and view into the eternal covenant of redemption, which God brought about through his son. And so I want to look at God's purpose for the promised land in Deuteronomy. As they're entering the land, God enumerates his desires. He, he lists his reasons for what he wants this land to to be, and we're going to start as always in Genesis, the first three chapters of the Bible, being really the benef- uh, the beginning of any sort of uh, right Christian doctrine. <clears throat> After that, we're going to look at God's fatherly discipline, and as I alluded to, and we'll look at in great detail. I do not simply mean punishment or chastisements. Discipline is much more than that. And it's important as a generation in the cultural context that we face as Christians, we learn to relate to fatherhood as not simply just relating to discipline in a punitive sense, but rather discipline and instruction and formation. I want to look at the grace of God's covenant. One of the differentiations between our church and what is properly known as Reformed theology is we do not believe that God's covenants are covenants of works but rather they are all gracious covenants, and we'll see that in great and clear detail. And that actually informs how we understand the gospel. The gospel is not turn or burn. The gospel is Jesus' is king, and he's inviting you into his kingdom, and he will reform you, remake you by the Spirit of God, and you will then begin to look more and more like him, and you will pass out of death and into life. You will leave darkness and blindness, and you will live in a land of light, freedom, and liberty. And so understanding the gracious aspect of the covenant is so important. Nevertheless, understanding that gracious covenant, we can err in which we pervert the nature of grace to licentiousness or excess, which the people of God surely did, and Moses warns them quite clearly in this passage not to do. And then finally, I want to discuss where all this is going. I want to give to you a Christian view of purpose. Now, I don't recommend, although there is, whenever someone says purpose in the Christian context right now, you may think of a book called The Purpose Driven Life. This is antithetical to that book. And if you haven't read that book, that's fine. I don't dislike Rick Warren. He's probably a great guy, I've never met him. But much of what that book talks about is repopularizing or regurgitating this notion that the Christian purpose is really eternal and doesn't begin to work from eternity back into time. It doesn't understand that eternity in Christ touches now and what he's doing by his spirit, the eternal spirit, through his church, the eternal elect. And so as we seek to apply Christian doctrine I think one of the greatest aspects of Christianity that's lacking today is a right understanding of recovered ambition. Not baptized ambition, not, not, you know, sanctified with air quotes ambition, but redeemed ambition. That is a sense of personal purpose that I have moral agency in my obedience with Christ. Surely the grace of God is manifold to me, but I must begin to obey in faith. And that obedience in faith matters. It actually has a consequence. As we see, although we can't get into it, Paul gives a demonstration of this to the Corinthians, and he talks about a reward of works for those who operate according to faith. And so it's right for us, as, especially as a church filled with young people uh, or, or old people, and there's no age to start or stop, uh, that we really examine what does it mean to be a Christian living in God's world? What does it mean to live in a world in which we are taking dominion, but taking dominion for a purpose? Are, is, does it matter? And my, my argument would be it absolutely matters. So I want to look at Moses' teachings to the people of Israel, but before that, I want to look at God's purpose for the land. In Genesis, God is seen as the creator and sustainer of all that is. He, everything under heaven and earth that was made, it was made by God, and it was made by God, and therefore he has the authority over it. If you make something, you have the authority over it. You have those things. You can do whatever you want with them within within God's law, but you, you cannot simply take something that doesn't belong to you and speak over it. No, God speaks over his creation because it is his. He is the creator and sustainer and the invigorator of all that is. He he made creation and it was good. As Romans one tells us, that that God is plainly seen through the things that he has made, and so God, day after day in the creation story, observes what he's made, and he declares, he testifies that it was good, and it was made for a good purpose. And this God who made everything for a good purpose also desired, because of his love that he had within himself and his desire to, uh, within the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit honor and glorify one another, he desired that he would invest his image into creatures that he had formed with his hands, namely man or Adam, as it's plainly written in Genesis 1 through 3. Just as a side note really quick, whenever you read Adam, it's not his first name, that's the Hebrew word for man. And so the doctrine of man begins in Genesis 1 through 3, and we see that this man or Adam, Adam, has been given a vice regency over the garden and indeed the whole world. We've touched on that the last two weeks in great detail. Adam was given a vice regency, or that is, he was a co-heir with God as an under authority for God over the garden, which he was given. And this is his job to tend and keep and cultivate the garden. And he has this task to tend and to keep it because of God's grace. As we'll see in a few minutes, it was God's gracious giving of life to Adam that he was then placed into a garden. It wasn't as if Adam started in a wilderness and then made a garden. He was starting in a garden, and eventually, through his sin, he'll go to a wilderness. After rebelling against God's commissions or commission, Adam's tasks were diminished. Remember, he was given the command to tend and keep the garden, and through Adam's sin, he faces the curse, and that curse was an expulsion from the garden. So Adam's original calling to tend and keep the garden, to have dominion over the whole earth, part of that task was removed because of his failure to be obedient. Now, that obedience should have been faith-filled, but rather it was through the ignorance of Disobedience. That is, he did not call to mind the promises of God, but rather he rebelled against them. Instead of cultivating a garden, he now fights against thorns and thistles. This is the curse which has come upon the whole creation. And this curse which has come upon the whole creation has subjected everything in the world, according to Romans 8, under this for a time until the sons of God are revealed. Immediately after this, however, actually right before God pronounces the curse, he actually gives the promise. It's important to see that God's promise of Eve's seed, that is offspring, one offspring, crushing the serpent's head, that was given before the curse was announced. And so even in the judgment which comes against Adam's disobedience in his covenant, even that is preceded by grace. It is never covenant obedience unto grace. It is grace for the context of covenant obedience. Before the arrival of woman's offspring, God worked in and through his image bearers. See, there's, it's not as if they sin in the garden, and then they hear this promise of God known as the Proto-Evangelion, the, the promise that, that Jesus will, or, or Eve's offspring will come and stomp on the head of the servant, serpent. It's not the case that then Jesus shows up immediately after that. God has a plan that he's working through history, and his plan is to set the context for the greatest number of people hearing of this one offspring, which he had predestined from before the foundations of the world to send. This is God's desire that he would be gloried in by the greatest number of people who receive the greatest manifestation of his grace, and God works through history and works through his people to bring that about. That's exactly what we see when God calls Abraham. God calls Abraham and he takes him to a particular piece of land. Remember, God takes Adam after forming the garden and he installs Adam into the garden. Just as Adam's sins lead to the expulsion from the garden, so do the sins of the Amorites and Canaanites lead to their expulsion from the land. God has a desire for this piece of land, this property, this area, which he has set his heart on, that he would use it for a special purpose, namely the bringing of his son. And he desires this piece of land to be set at peace. When we see Abraham, after he defeats a number of kings who come up against him without cause, after he defeats them militarily, hundreds of people involved in these battles, you don't call a king over, you don't, name someone a king who only has authority over 10 people. These five kings come against Adam, and after this, Adam then encounters this one who is Melchizedek, right? And he's the king of what city? Salem. And Salem is the word in the scriptures for peace. The desire or the implication, the the kind of foreshadowing is that God, through his chosen servant, through the patriarch Abraham, is going to wipe away those who are committing gross iniquities. Now, before we get to the actual bringing of judgment, I just want to make it clear. There's a commonly a popular level argument that God allowed the Israelites to operate in genocide against the people of Canaan and the Amorites and these people who were in the land. And I just want to remind you of what happens 400 years before this. Abraham is uh, living outside of the city of Sodom, Lot's has decided to live in the city of Sodom. Sodom and Lot is entertained uh, by some angels. Some some angels come and show up. Some people say it's a theophany of the divine, that is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit show up in human form. I think that is a ridiculous notion. I believe it's quite clear from the context that there is a Christophany and there are two angels with Christ, uh, the Father never being incarnate, the Father being a spirit, the Father not being seen by any person. Nevertheless, that's... a a discussion for a different day these two angels show up to lot's house and what happens in the city of sodom sodom they b- pound down the door to attempt to rape these men this is the cultural context of hospitality in sodom right this is what they do to visitors and when we hear this we see that god has desired that he would judge sin that is full that is, the people of Sodom gave absolutely no offense or there was, there was no war against that sin. It was completely accepted. And the reason we know this is because Abraham then pleads with Yahweh time and again, 50, 25, 10. And finally, he understands there's no one who does not deserve judgment in Sodom. God calls down fire upon that city. And you have to understand that is 400 years before. And at that time, when the greatest example of wickedness in the scriptures is shown, except for two other things, when that same thing happens in the people of Israel in the book of Judges, and then the murdering of the only innocent person, that is the crucifying of Jesus Christ. Even then, when the fire of God comes upon Sodom, he decides the iniquity is not yet full. And people today they they have an accusation against God saying, why did you kill those people, assuming the evil of God and the innocence of the people of the Amorites and the Canaanites? But if you had any biblical sense, if there were any truth operating in your heart and mind, you would say, God, why did it take so long? You should have rained down fire upon them immediately. And in fact, sometimes I feel like John and James, the sons of thunder, they were partially Right? <laughs> Nevertheless, these cities, Jesus Christ actually says the iniquity of Israel in rejecting the wonders of God, that Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented If the things that were done in Capernaum were done in those cities, they would have repented long ago. That means that those who have more access to the knowledge of God, those who have access to the covenants and God's testimonies and statutes, those who have spiritual understanding have greater responsibility for faith-filled obedience. Greater responsibility, not less. It's not as if we just have more grace, therefore God's more forgiving and will tolerate unrepentant sin even more and even longer. That is presuming upon the grace of God and it is judged in history. God patiently waits to judge the Amorites, giving them time to repent, but they do not and they will not. They do not repent because they won't repent. That is to say, it's not that they are unable because of something outside of themselves. They are unable because they do not want it. 400 years later, the judgments of God come against that wicked people through the Israelites, and he does so to install them so that there would be a peace to the land. The people of the the Amorites and the Canaanites are doing violence against God's creation by living in it in a way that is filled with iniquity. It is not just private sins which are done in the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is sins which uh, infect and bring a curse upon the land itself. Deuteronomy one, God shows his purpose at the very beginning of this discourse, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply, go in and possess the land. The reason God gives the the covenant is in order that they would prosper in the land, that they would be there for a long time. Remember, he's just put up with four centuries of iniquity and he has decided enough is enough, judgment is come, The, the time is ripe, And I will install those in the land who will bring peace to it because they will have my law and I will be their God. They will go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And here again, the covenant of grace must be seen. The promise, as Galatians 3 says, was given to Abraham by faith. Even though God is using Israel to judge the sins of the Canaanites, they themselves are not without guilt. Remember what takes place in the, land, in, in the wilderness before they enter the land is time and again, Israel rebels against the faithfulness of God and grumbles. Verse 2, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that they might humble you, or that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. It's made clear to the people of Israel that they cannot obey God's commandments without his grace. That itself is an aspect of God's grace, the knowledge that we need God's power in order to obey God. And lest you say, well, I don't have God's power, else I would be obeying God's power, for the Christian, there is no limit to the grace that is available to you. Verse three, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Just as a uh, side comment, In the Gospels, the most quoted book of the Bible by Jesus himself is Deuteronomy. And uh, if you still have a little bit of that antinomianism working in your thought process as you're hearing today, just keep that in mind, that Jesus defeated Satan by quoting the covenant to him. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Are you living as a natural minded person? Do you understand that your spiritual nourishment is just as, if not more, than important, more important than your natural nourishment? Jesus is saying that these people are being fed and informed by the very word of God and that is causing them to be sustained. So God takes the Israelites through the desert in order to, to instill in their mind one principal thing that they need to stay close to Yahweh. And that his grace is able to answer every need. That is, they are hungry, he sends manna. They are hungry for meat, he sends quail. They are thirsty, he gives water in a desert place. He literally makes the desert a place of desolation. He makes it into a spring. But we're going to see just that this is the opposite of what happened in Adam. Adam lived in a garden and was exiled into a wilderness. God has taken them through a wilderness and is installing them in a promised land that looks like a garden. God's discipline, therefore, his fatherly discipline, is not merely punitive. It is setting them up to succeed, not to fail. Verse five, know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. If anything, the point of the wilderness was to say to the Israelites, do not go away from Yahweh, but closer to Yahweh. Fear of the Lord does not drive one away, but it drives one to stay close, to cling to, to adore and hold fast to. If Israel is to do well, That is, he that is seeing him as the nation, God speaks of Israel as as a boy or a son, he must remember Yahweh's provision, grace, and authority. And remembering these gracious responses of Yahweh in the midst of their grumbling and complaining, all the more they should see that God is a God of grace and a God who will be faithful to them. The covenant established by Yahweh is not a one-way covenant. Again, coming back to this idea of grace being the precursor to the law, or that is to say, grace being the context of the, the atmosphere around the thing which sustains and makes possible the covenant. And so God here is giving the people of Israel manifold gifts. I want you to look clearly at what has happened. Just as Adam was placed in the garden, so also Israel is given the land. Israel's faithfulness to Yahweh does not earn her the right to the land. I want you to, to, to think about that. When we think about Israel's expulsion from the land, that is, the many exiles and chastisements that God sent against her, we think that's because they didn't obey the covenant, and that is true. But then we work back from that idea and think, oh, well, then that means they must have gotten the land by obeying the covenant. They became the people of God by obedience. No, it's very clear. God brings them into the land as he's re-giving the law. They haven't even had time to obey it. They've been given the context. The law was for the land and the land was for the law. They weren't together. Yahweh did not uh, allow Israel to earn the land, but rather he gave it to her. Nor did Israel have to earn Yahweh's favor. In the very preceding chapter in verse uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 7 Uh, God reminds the people of Israel of their low status, that is their trivial importance. It says that he didn't choose them because they were mightier than any of the other nations, but rather they actually were smaller, but that wasn't the reason either. He chose them because of his great love for them. He chose them because he wanted to choose them. It was God's purpose. So the covenant given to Israel was a gracious covenant, and it was made on the promise made to Abraham. Not only were they given a law that was perfect, they also received a cultivated land and the means of production. If you've ever taken an economics class, please turn on Economics 101 in your heart and mind and see what Yahweh was setting up Israel for. For the Lord your God, verse 7, is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of, oil tree, uh, of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of, the, out of whose hills you can dig copper. What has God just given on a silver platter to the Israelites? He've, he has given them the things that are necessary for thriving economically and prospering not only materially, but prospering holistically. That is, they've been given a title and charter to a piece of land, which belonged to their father Abraham, and now they receive as heirs of the promise. They were also given the means of production. He said, these are things that are yours, fields of barley. Do do you know how awesome it is to get a field that's already tilled, cultivated, sowed, and ready to harvest? It's way easier, if you don't know, than harvesting or uh, sowing and planting and, and tilling yourself. Cultivated land can be maintained easily. It's very hard to cultivate the wilderness. They've not only been given land, they've also been given infrastructure and they were given places which they could use for utility. That is iron and copper, those things that go rightly well with war, that is armies, the means of defense and the beautification or artwork. Almost all of the art that I've ever seen is some sort of bronze or uh, that is artwork of antiquity was used, it used copper and tin together. And so Israel has been given a whole country they receive a gracious context. Israel's greatest challenge would not be the driving out of the nations, but rather, in this area, maintaining thankfulness to Yahweh. Should she become unthankful, she will eventually be unfaithful. Unthankfulness becomes unfaithfulness. And so the act of giving thanks sets her up for continued faithful obedience. They go together. You cannot obey God and not have any sort of heart reality with God. You must worship him as God, and that includes thanksgiving. Verse 10, you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. He he says right there that there is a time in verse 10 that he's speaking of that they will bless the Lord for the good land. But he gives them a warning in verse 11, take care lest, or that is take care because it's possible that you will forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. And therefore, in forgetting God's commandments and covenants, becoming ignorant of them, that leads to the unthankfulness, which leads to unfaithfulness. In forgetting, in forgetting to give thanks to God, they forget him entirely. Look at, look at how this unthankfulness or a lack of thanksgiving becomes for them spiritual idolatry. Look at what happens. They they ignore their God. They do not honor him as God. They do not thank him for the things that they were given. And then they turn into the nations around them. Verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Skipping to verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. This is probably my favorite verse in all of Deuteronomy, the very next verse, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The whole point of the prosperity that was given to Israel was not for her to use it, abuse it, consume it for her own satisfaction, but rather that in the right use of it, honoring God as God, it would not supplant the, the primal place or the first place in their heart, but rather that would belong to Yahweh. And as Yahweh worshipers, they would utilize the creation in a way that honors him and demonstrates his authority and their vice authority or vice regency. That is, God's in the first place and we are merely tending and maintaining and stewarding in the second place. This forgetfulness will give rise to idolatry, false worship, and lethal fatal judgment. It will literally cause them to die. Verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God and go after the other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes you to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Yahweh through the mouth of Moses gives the people of Israel an analogy, or a metaphor, or a simile here. This There's a comparison, and I want to hopefully drive you to the point of understanding that you would allow this to click in your mind as you hear it with logic once again, that if Israel does not obey God, then she will perish like the other nations who are being driven out. That's proposition A, if Israel does not obey, she will be judged and driven out. Proposition B, the other nations are being driven out, Therefore, what is the applicability of the law of God? It applies to every nation because she's the nations in the land are being judged. And if Israel does not obey God's covenant, she will be judged according to verse 20, like the other nations. Therefore, we must pay all the more attention to what we've been given. As those who've been redeemed by Christ we cannot be ignorant of the things of God, nor of God's word for all aspects of life. And so now I want to move into how is this? how does this relate at all to the gospel? Well, it relates in every way. Just as Israel was delivered from Egypt, Christians have been delivered from the dominion of darkness or the domain of Satan into a kingdom of light, according to Colossians 1. We've been transferred. And that transfer implies things, or it will necessarily bring about things. God brought judgment upon Egypt through Outward judgments, that is, judgments that were demonstrated against the nation, leading to culminating in the death of the firstborn. And in the the unfolded plan of redemption, Christ made manifest, he takes the greatest judgment of God, that is, the judgment against sin, upon himself. And he himself suffers under the weight of the condemnation or the judgment against sin. He takes that penalty upon himself, creating space or a provision for those who would be united in him, that vicariously we would be joined to Christ by faith, a faith that is given to us by God as an act of his grace, and that we would be spared from the wrath that came on sin. Just as Noah and his family hid in the ark, so also Christians cling to, run to, depend upon Christ and escape the wrath which is coming against sin. Because Christ was innocent, however, the Father has vindicated him and granted that he would sit at the right hand of God, that is, he would sit before him and reign as the true vice-regent. This is one who is the second Adam put in place forever. And it is only through Christ that we have victory. One great temptation when beginning to understand the whole counsel of God is to think, oh, well, now that I'm a Christian, I've kind of got this. No, it's not the case at all. It is only possible that in clinging to Christ, we could have any hope of obeying this. It is only being aided by the spirit that we could even want to do it or even actually do it. And so it is a gospel-centered approach to obedience to faith-filled obedience it is clinging to christ and seeking to honor him as king now those who dwell in christ's kingdom have been restored to a calling like the first adam but with none of the possible downfalls that is to say that christ as a, a true and eternal mediator will not allow his sons and daughters to fall away in fact it is actually for this very purpose that you've been saved many christians think again they are going to heaven, and that's the point of their salvation. It's not the point. Although it is an intended goal, it is not the point. And by the point, I mean the only point. This is actually not a d- diminishing of the importance of salvation, but a- actually in- extending it. Because now we've been invited by Christ to join into the mission. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, which I have on the slide here, it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Now this beforehand in the context of Ephesians 2 is talking about election from the foundation of the before the foundation of the world. God has desired this, and we were made in Christ. We were made as new creations, according to verse 10 of Ephesians 2. We are his good work that was created in him for good works, for the purpose of. That is the goal. God prepared these for us that we should walk in them. And again, that that phrase, walking in God's statutes, couldn't be understood biblically except for referring to the law of God. Therefore, as Christians, we must be engaged in the world cultivating, glorifying, shaping, utilizing everything that God has made for his good pleasure. Christianity is not a flight from the world. Christianity is a taking back of the world. We should renew our minds from false views of spirituality unto the redeeming of godly ambition. What do I mean by that? So many Christians hear Jesus' teachings at the Sermon on the Mount which say do not put your heart in earthly riches which is true and wise and wisdom from uh, from above and it must be obeyed and but they sin in error and they err when they think therefore if i'm not supposed to touch earthly riches therefore i don't uh, if i'm not supposed to uh, allow my heart to be captivated by those things that i don't pursue them at all that i it, it matters more that i simply live a life that is spiritually pure And it doesn't really matter what happens in this world, because it all will be judged anyway. This is not at all the case. We were created for a purpose, and that purpose is to live in the land as prophetic people. As we understand Christ's ministry being prophet, priest, and king, so also the New Testament explains that we have been given a like ministry in this life, that we as Christians would live prophetic lives. Now, I don't mean that you're walking around holding up the Bible to your forehead and saying, thus saith the Lord, you will, whatever. That's not what I mean by prophetic. Prophetic means a living witness and testimony against the unfaithfulness and a call to remember. As Christians who utilize God's creation in a right way, we serve as perpetual reminders to those who use it in an improper way. By our moderate and faithful stewardship of the created order and the physical world and everything that comes into our hands, we testify against those who consume and consume and consume without ever ending or being satisfied. Through thanksgiving, we prophesy against or remind that there is a God who, uh, to those who do not acknowledge God. This is what it means for Christians to live as a prophetic witness. That is to say, we are testifying of the existence of Yahweh through the way that we live. Now, this is never to be taken as a means to excuse proclamation evangelism, but rather it's to be understood that Christianity is a totalizing worldview. In fact, all worldviews are totalizing. But nevertheless, your Christianity should be pressed into every dimension of life. How you treat your wife or children or husband, in whatever context you're you're there in. Uh, How you treat your employer. I was in a discussion on Friday night, and it was just so evident that cultural Marxism has pervaded even Christian minds, where they've, they've begun to look at their employers as if it's a war against them. You're supposed to partner with your employer or employee, and you're supposed to treat them as image bearers of God, and you can only do that being remade in the image of Christ. Nevertheless, even how you do your job as a Christian is a testimony and should be a prophetic witness to the world that there is a God who I serve that is higher than my employer. And as C.S. Lewis explained to husbands saying that In loving God, you do not love your wife less, but love her more. And if you supplanted the love of God for the love of wife, you would actually love her less than if it were rightly ordered. So also for Christian employees, honoring God as God and their employer as second actually does greater service to the employer than if the employer was the total or the ultimate instead of the penultimate. Nevertheless, Christians are supposed to operate in all aspects of society, testifying of the righteousness of God. There is a God. We do not live like atheists who live as their prevailing worldview tells them that nothing matters. We have a worldview that tells us that everything matters because God is the one who matters and God made everything. Therefore, we seek to honor him in every way. Now, nevertheless... In understanding this, we see that this is a great and high calling and it's only possible to be done by those who understand God's word and that can only happen being aided by the Spirit. So we have a lot to do and a lot to get to work on. Let's begin to pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We ask you that you would begin to renew our minds, that we would see that your word is a lamp to our feet, that it is the way that young men and young women might preserve their way. That your word is not only illuminating to our hearts, but it also, Lord, is the motivation for work. It's the motivation for art and commerce and economics and social theory and governance. We pray that you would give us a total and concise, uh, not concise, but consistent worldview. That you would allow us to escape the false views of Christianity, Christianity, which posit some sort of spirituality that is only concerned with the next life, but that we would see that we have been given this life to glorify you and that we would actually begin to do it. We pray, Lord, that you would, through whatever way necessary, but we ask that you would give to us an understanding of those areas in which we do not accept your counsel, that you would reform us, that you would allow us, as your word says, that we would shine ever brighter, moving from glory to glory. We pray that your kingdom would be made manifest through this church, through our lives individually, and that you would renew godly ambition and a sense of personal purpose. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.